You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. We are incredibly lucky to have Randy Commissar here from Kleiner Perkins Caulfield Buyers. And uh, he is one of the most interesting people I know. His background is incredibly diverse. He's been a lawyer, he's been an entrepreneur, he's a venture capitalist, he's an author. And before I try to butcher your whole bio, I'm going to let you tell us a little bit of your background so that we have some context for the stories you're going to tell us. Yeah, and I've been a janitor and a baker <laughs> and a heating maintenance man. Um, I. Uh, when I graduated from Brown a long time ago, um, I, I worked in a couple of different areas. Um, I was a rock promoter. I worked in community development. I helped run a community, pro, a community development program for the city of Providence, Rhode Island. I taught economics at a small college in, in uh, Rhode Island. And from there, I went on to law school, uh, which was actually a, sort of a diversion, turns out, for me, distraction. I went to law school, I went to Harvard Law School. When I graduated from Harvard Law School, I thought I was going to be a, go back into the music business. Um, but instead, I got very intrigued by technology. And uh, I found myself first practicing law as a, as a litigator in Boston, and then coming out here to the West Coast, where I practiced first as a litigator and then in an emerging field at the time in the early 80s, the, sort of the revolution of the PC as a technology lawyer, which meant that I fundamentally just worked in intellectual property transactions between software and hardware. I went to Apple Computer, where I was a senior counsel uh, and did a lot of business deals, and then went off to found Claris Corporation, which was a software company in the 80s that we spun out of Apple. After that, I went to do another startup called Go Corporation, which was a Kleiner Perkins-backed startup. It was the first time I worked with Kleiner Perkins. That was uh, one of the pioneers in pen computing. Uh, didn't go so well with uh, Go Corporation. We sold that to AT&T, uh, and I went off to run LucasArts Entertainment as a CEO for George Lucas. So I got back into the entertainment business for a few years. I moved from there to um, Crystal Dynamics, another KP company. I ran that for KP. Uh, and then I it, it sort of reinvented myself as something called a virtual CEO. It was the heyday of the internet. There, was a lot, there were a lot of great ideas, a lot of young entrepreneurs, um, not a lot of seasoned management uh, that was available to guide these early companies. And so I sort of invented this new role where I could help manage a portfolio of businesses. And uh, I did Web TV, TiVo, Mondo Media, a variety of businesses at the time, some of which did very well, some less well. But fundamentally, the model worked. And uh, I then took that model um, into social ventures in the in, after the year 2000. I got out of the, the, um, the, the for-profit venture business around 1999. Um, it was uh, just before my book came out. Um, I had been writing about what was going on in Silicon Valley. It was the monk and the riddle. Uh, the book was about sort of the heart and soul of entrepreneurship and how we were losing it. And it foretold what we saw in 2000. I thought things were going to crash, and they crashed. I bet with my dollars and got out of the market in 1999, started doing social venture work, and started teaching with my, um, with my good partner, Tom Byers, and we started teaching here at, uh, at Stanford in um, high-tech entrepreneurship. Did that for almost eight years. Um, in the interim, uh, was invited to bring my practice in mentoring and guiding young startups to Kleiner Perkins. 
And so I joined Kleiner Perkins as a, as a partner in 2005, and I've, I've been there ever since. Great. Well, I want to recognize the fact that your new book that just came out with John Mullins, Getting to Plan B. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about that book is that the assumption is that all business plans are really plan A, and it's very unlikely that they're going to succeed. So um, are all business plans a work of fiction? You know, it's interesting. I'm going to take one step back on John Mullins because John Mullins was brought to me by Tom Byers. John Mullins was here from the London School of, um, of Business about 2006 or seven, and he was working on a thesis around business models. And he came to me with this idea that there was a way to sort of methodically map business models for startups. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I doubted that. Uh, and so we ended up in a debate, and the debate became this plan B phenomena, which fundamentally was around the notion of, could you actually build a business plan before there was a product? Could you build a business plan before there was a customer? Um, and in my experience, that didn't work very well. And so we went out and did the research. And the research suggested that, in fact, the vast majority of plan A's fail. And the vast majority of the successes that we think about out there, the Googles of the world, the, the Facebooks of the world, um, the Intuits, the Suns, the Apples of the world, they didn't succeed with plan A. And that's sort of a little known fact. Uh, most people sort of sweep that under the the carpet and sort of talk about these companies as if they had executed um, well from the idea to conception, from conception to product, from product to customer, from customer to business. That's not the way it normally goes. And so the premise behind Plan B, uh, Getting to Plan B, the new book that uh, we just, I just wrote with John Mullins, is that if Plan A is most often fail, which they empirically do, then should we have a different methodology for how we, in fact, run startups and get to the right plan, plan B. So if we assume that plan A is something that has to be very um, changeable, yeah. then what are the things that you should really make sure in plan A, uh, even though you know things are going to change? Plan A is useful for a number of reasons. Um, one of the questions that always gets asked is, if you don't believe plan A is going to succeed, why create it? The process of creating plan A is important in and of itself. And the reason it's important is that it forces you to confront your assumptions, it forces you to have to model out your challenges, and it forces you to have to deal with mitigating your risks. It also allows you to start to create um, a, uh, a language that you can share with other people in the business community, the language of the business plan, the language of revenues, of profitability, of growth, of customers and customer value and pricing. This language is really important and it starts to translate your idea into a business. So it is important to have a plan A and it's important because it allows you to tell the story well and to begin to call out your assumptions and your risks. And that's where this getting to plan B process starts. So do most venture capitalists think the way you do? I mean, when they're looking at a team, are they saying, okay, this is plan A, but we need to sort of look around the corner, what's going to be plan B and C and D? I mean, are they evaluating the team based on their ability to change based on the data they get? Sadly, I'd have to say the answer to that is no. Um, I would say that the venture capital industry is an industry. Now, mind you, it's a big industry and there's lots of different players and some are very good and some are less good and lots of people have different approaches. But I'd say in general they're complicit with the plan A problem. 
they tend to want to fund a plan A, execute against a plan A, and consider it a failure if plan A changes. One of the reasons that I wrote the, this book was because I wanted to empower entrepreneurs in a dialogue with their constituents, including their investors, around what the process really was and help the entrepreneurs find the right backers who could live through that flexible and experimental process of innovation. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm always fascinated and most impressed by those companies who really do uh, are able to change when they see things aren't working. In fact, I was talking last night uh, with the Pinger founders uh, about yeah. how they have basically changed so many times. Well, I love that story. Yeah, you want to tell that? I love that story. This is a company that um, I incubated at Kleiner Perkins in my first year, 2005, and they were two very seasoned entrepreneurs that came out of the handspring and palm companies, early smartphone companies, and um, they've been very successful there. And they had been looking at what had been going on in texting in 2005. In the U.S., actually, interesting enough, 2005 texting was still pretty small. Europe was large. And we're looking at texting and saying, you know, this is a weird interface. You know, using your thumbs to sort of you know, triple tap the keys in order to text seemed like a very odd interface for a device that was designed around voice. So couldn't we design a better voice interface for the chatting that goes on in texting? That was the premise. That was the problem we were trying to solve. Um, we put together a plan to do that. Uh, the plan started with the requirement of about $9 million just to build the base technology. Uh, and I consider that to be way too much to experiment with. And so we went to Telme, and Telme gave us a sandbox of their technology for free to try this out. Why did they do that? Because if it worked, they wanted to have a relationship with it. They really wanted to uh, see whether or not consumers would begin to use something other than texting. So for a couple of million dollars, we were able to go off and test that premise. They built a wonderful product, and it failed to catch on. Now, mind you, this is pre-smartphone. Um, SMS is just taking off in the U.S. There's a lot of circumstances around this. But fundamentally, the customers aren't buying the value proposition. They, only having spent a few million dollars and not having run out of money yet, they retreat. They're measuring constantly to see who's using what, testing their hypotheses. They see it's not working. They come back and they say, you know, we actually see a lot of social behaviors going on here. Um, maybe we can harness those. And so they build a, a, uh, an application for a feature phone, not a smartphone, that has a whole bunch of things in it, including voice, but also some texting. Well, they go out with this on the feature phones, and guess what? It works pretty well, but they're measuring very, very carefully, and they find out that what's working is texting. So rather than sort of fight the, uh, the facts, they decide that they're going to retreat one more time and design an application for smartphones specifically around texting and they designed their first product for the iPhone. It takes off. They designed a second product for the iPhone. It takes off. They have now launched 15 products, 13 of which have been in the top 10 in, uh, on the Apple iPhone. That's out of 150,000 applications. And they are cash flow positive. And they're continuing to improve upon the platforms they built around monetization and promotion that allows them to add not just communications products, but a variety of other products. They become the master publisher. They're one of the top five producers for all of the iTunes store. That's a fascinating story because 
if, if that company had been run wrong, if they had invested too much money in any one of those early experiments, if they had failed to measure, they would have been out before they ever got a chance to taste success. Yeah, I just love the fact that they were constantly willing to experiment and reinvent themselves and reinvent themselves and reinvent themselves until they finally hit the ball out of the park. Yeah. So I love the fact in your book that you talk about analogs. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that is most powerful is that you say companies can use these analogs to give them some indication about where they're going to find success. Can, can you tell us about that? Yeah. So. The premise of getting to plan B is, of course, that plan A's, plan A's most often fail. What is the right process to start this flexible, iterative innovation process, uh, uh, goal, you know, the experiment? And um, I start with defining the problem. The bigger the problem, the better. But define the problem. A lot of times, believe it or not, people come to me with a technology that's a solution without telling me what the solution is for. Because they can make the dog jump, they somehow think that somebody wants a jumping dog. <laughs> and uh, and this, is a, this, is, this is very, very um, frequent in the startup business. So I basically say, stop, go back one step. What's the problem? What problem are you trying to solve here? That problem, by the way, could be a customer delight. It could be something that is just so wonderful that people want to use it. Cool Iris is a product like that, another, another business that we incubated at uh, Kleiner Perkins. Um, then, basically, I say, okay, now tell me what your solution is, a defensible solution, something that is unique in the marketplace. Once you've got that, I ask you to go look at what's going on in the marketplace and give me your analogs and antilogs. Why do I do that? Because you can learn an awful lot without actually having to spend a nickel by watching what others have done. Yes, everybody comes and tells me what they're doing is absolutely novel. Nobody's ever done it before. I've never seen anything like it. It is revolutionary. If I hear that term again in a, in a pitch, I'm, I'm, I'm going to walk out. Um, everything is revolutionary. It's unique. It's one of a kind. That's wrong. Everything is drawing upon and synthesizing upon something else. There's some behavior out there. There's some application or some solution or some service that is touched upon this in some way. You know, when Apple decided to proceed with the iPod, they were operating on the backs of, uh, of what Sony had done before with the Walkman. They could learn a ton from what had gone wrong at Napster. They were able to take a look at the small digital devices that had come out to that, to, at that point that were doing digital storage and see what was wrong with them. They had all that advantage. There's no reason to sort of start from scratch. So analogs are looking at those things that are similar that have worked in the past. Antilogs are looking at those things that have failed in the past and trying to distinguish them from what you're doing. It's key to, to learn as much as you can from others before you start down the path of spending your own time and money. Very interesting. Now, can you give us an example? Well, I think the iPod is a very interesting one. It's in the book. Um, and when the, in, in the iPod, of course, was revolutionary in the sense that it changed the way in which we all started to listen to music, buy music, probably the more important revolution there was in how we bought music. But what's interesting about it is that it didn't have to answer some key questions. If you came into me and we didn't know that the iPod existed, we never knew the Walkman existed, and you said, I have a device for listening to music in public on headphones, there's a, there's a critical question that needs to get asked. Will people actually listen in an antisocial way, in a public setting, to music? 
Now, you might say, that's a dumb question. It's only dumb because we already know the answer, not because it's a dumb question. That question was answered by Sony. And by the way, when Sony had answered the question, it was a really hard question. Sony had to wrestle with whether or not people were going to buy and listen to music in public settings on headphones. And so Apple had that analog to work with. On the other hand, it had the Napster problem. We know that people are downloading digital music not to digital portable players, but to the PC. But we didn't know they would pay for it. Apple had to answer that question in the affirmative to have a business. Because without iTunes, a legitimate way for music to get sold, they were going to suffer the same fate that Napster did. They were going to get sued into oblivion by the labels for piracy. So that's an example of how to think about the analog and antilogs in these ventures. So you talk about avoiding leaps of faith. Mm. On the other hand, we think of entrepreneurs as those people who are willing to take leaps no. and take some risks. So how do you reconcile that? I mean, how, you know, I'm going to guess you want to invest in people who are willing to try things that haven't been tried before. Well, it's not avoiding leaps of faith. In fact, I think that once you've done your analog and antilogs, the next thing to do is identify your leaps of faith. The issue is not to avoid them, but to correctly define them to correctly sort of say, okay, this is what I know about the world from my analog and antilogs. I understand that people will download digital music. I don't know if they'll pay for it. That's a leap of faith question. I understand that people will listen to music in public settings, but they do it off a CD. I don't know if I can, if I can actually put together a device that is digital, that's going to have enough storage, enough battery power, uh, and an interface that is going to work for people. So you end up with these leaps of faith that have to be defined. The key to a leap of faith, though, is understanding the priority of leaps of faith. Why are leaps of faith important? Because they focus you. By understanding the key things you need to answer in order to prove whether your idea is going to work and prioritizing those, you are focusing all of your time and effort on the, the things that will kill you or make your business work. Pinger, for instance, had to figure out with that first voice product how much they were going to invest in a scalable back end, which, by the way, did not address a leap of faith. We know we could develop a scalable back end if we had enough money, versus how much they were going to invest in the voice product itself to see whether or not people liked it. So I, what, what the getting to plan B process recommends is focusing in on no more than three leaps of faith that are definitive of your opportunity. Focusing everything you've got on getting as much information about those empirically, empirically, from the marketplace. And then once you've answered it in the affirmative, moving on, in the negative, course correcting, and then bringing up the next question, a rolling set of questions. Now, there's a lot of talk these days about the lean startup and uh. doing things with you know, really small amounts of resources to test things. Uh, this obviously is easy to do when you've got a Web 2.0 company. You can put up a website, see if people are interested. But what about in capital-intensive companies? How do you do those quick and dirty experiments to test the market? They're not as quick and they're not as dirty. But, but the process is the same. Um, for us to go off and test a biofuels company requires tens of millions of dollars of early risk elimination. That doesn't change the process of analogs and antilogs. It doesn't change the process of, of identifying leaps of faith. It doesn't change the process of creating a dashboard where you can go and, and collect immediate information about it. And in fact, what's interesting about it is, and you know this from your background, um, 
These are the sorts of players, the people who are building things like um, Syngas um, uh, companies. These are the sorts of players who actually take to this dashboard leaps of faith process best. Why? It looks like a lab experiment process. It's a quasi-scientific process. The more comfortable you are in the lab, the more your roots are in the lab, the more, the more obvious this process is to you, which is you're going to run a set of experiments, you're going to measure, you're going to test, you're going to course correct, and you're going to double down against your positive results, and you're going to have to change course on your negative results. So that's a really interesting point, though, because there is an escalation of commitment that you have once you've put more money, much more effort, much more time into a project. And in fact, entrepreneurs know that oftentimes you're going to have to like go through walls to make things happen. So when do you stay with your commitment and when do you decide to change? I mean, that's got to be one of the hardest decisions. I think it's the hardest decision. And in retrospect, it's always easy. Sort of, you know, almost everybody says they changed course too late. In retrospect, once you changed course, you wished you'd done it earlier. All the data, when you go back and look at it, you go, geez, I should have known this answer. But that doesn't make the, that doesn't make the decision any easier. Um, and the dashboarding process, the idea of taking your leaps of faith questions and executing against your questions rather than against a revenue line, a gross margin line, a, 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 an expense line, that does help you focus. Because at least you've got good metrics coming through. If you talk to the companies, Aggregate Knowledge is one of the companies that, uh, that I incubated that's in the book as well. If you talk to them about their process, yes, they wish they would have changed course faster every time, but they're thankful that they had the data that allowed them to change course in time by, because they were able to change course before it was too late because they were measuring. But as a venture capitalist, you've got your companies coming in, and they are changing course, and then changing course, and then changing course. How many times do you let them do it? I mean, this has, there has to be a point at which you say, all right, enough already. Well, in a way, what you're doing is you're renewing your vows every time. Okay. Because what they're doing is they're coming back to you with data. And so what you're doing now is rather than investing in an idea, you're investing in real data. When they come back to you and say, we're changing course to build this SMS product for the iPhone, you're not sort of saying, this is great, this is a very cool idea, some interesting entrepreneurs, I think I'll back them and see where it goes. You're saying, show me the data that says that this is worth my doing. And the data convinces them, it convinces you as an investor, or it doesn't. So how often should a company, an individual, be checking the dashboard? I mean, is it uh, daily, weekly, monthly, um, hourly? How often should you be reassessing? Depends what you're measuring. If you're measuring the um, efficiency of a syngas conversion of cellulose, you might be measuring that monthly because it may take you that long to sort of get to the next step function. If you're measuring whether consumers are, are engaging with your product, adopting it, and using it, you may be measuring by the, by the minute. Um, Pinger today has a set of dashboards and dials that they're running on both the adoption side and monetization side every few minutes, like Quotrons. So is there an analog for this in our own lives? Do you uh, use this? I mean, do you have uh, analogs and antilogs and yeah. do you have a dashboard? <laughs> well, you can certainly think back to the experience of probably a lot of people in this room as you begin to think about what you're going to do with your life. You know, what, what's, your, what's your major? You know, what are you going to do after you graduate? 
Um, how are, are you going to go to graduate school or are you going to go into business? What sort of business? The process is not that different than a venture. You, there's the unknowns are, predominate over the knowns as you begin to look at these questions in your lives. So where do you, what do you draw upon? And I think you draw upon the experience of others, the analogs and antologs out there. You draw upon those leaps of faith questions that are really critical to you in your life right now. And then you begin to see how those map against the opportunity, something like the dashboard process. And so I don't think it's very different. I think this is a, this is a process that, that um, adds a discipline to sort of a natural way of thinking about problems when you have insufficient information and when you are on a path to get more data. Great. I want to give you a heads up that I'm going to be opening up to questions in a couple minutes. So if you have any questions, get them formulated because you will have an opportunity to ask them to Randy. Yeah. So with all this in mind, what are the things that entrepreneurs should keep in mind when they come and pitch to you? Well, and, and you, you again touched upon this as you, as you describe the Plan B process and the venture process. Every venture capitalist says, I invest in people. Every one of them. It's almost a cliche. I don't even know what that means for half of them. Getting to plan B taught me a little bit of what it means for me. And exactly as you said earlier, finding people who are flexible, finding people who will, in fact, respond to metrics, finding people who have the tenacity and dedication to course correct in the near term against a bigger idea, and who can separate the big idea from the immediacy of the reactions they're getting from the marketplace, or from the immediacy of the staging of the product ideas that they need to get to plan B. Finding a group of people with the curiosity that's going to continue them thinking about their big idea, not just keep them wedded to an idea that is built upon assumption upon assumption upon assumption without any good metrics. The, the team that can actually respond to the market and as their idea gets, gets morphed by the market. That's what I'm looking for. So do you actually have these discussions in the boardroom? I mean, do you sit there with your colleagues and say, this person is flexible, this person is working toward the big idea? I certainly do. Um, whether, whether other venture capitalists do or not, I don't know. But certainly um, I do when I'm looking at these, um, my founders or my candidate founders, uh, when I'm beginning to think about what the venture needs next in its business, what sort of leadership and team it needs, how to build a complementary team. Those questions are important to me. How, how is somebody responding to change? Great. Well, I'm going to open it up to questions now, because I'm sure with a room this big, there are probably lots of people here who are dying to ask you a question. And I think the amplification is pretty good. So if you say um, it really loud, we'll be able to pick it up. Anyone have a question? Great. Back there. So let's, let's restate it. Would you rather have a fast-growing market with medium people or fabulous people and a fast-growing market? Um, I will tell you my preferences for great people and because I think they can find a good market. Um, but if the good market changes, mediocre people will fail. And so I, particularly when I look at things like consumer internet, it's so fickle. 
and it changes so rapidly that the last thing I want to do is get stuck with a team that is mediocre in the middle of what looks like a tsunami only to find that it dries up when it hits shore. So I'd rather have a group like Pinger who can reinvent themselves and find the market. It's this iPhone market, which it was a, a, a confluence of what was happening in context, contextually in the marketplace for them and for Apple, versus having a team that sort of says, the iPhone, that's a great market. I think I'll build apps for it. Well, what sort of things are you most excited about now? I mean, are there hmm. areas that you're saying, boy, this is on the horizon, this is what I'm really thinking about these days? You know, I, I, you know, I think consumer internet continues to be very interesting but awfully hard to gauge. It seems to be driven by bubbles and by waves of, um, of hyper-enthusiasm that are difficult to build, I think, legacy businesses around. There have been a few that have emerged, and when they emerge, they're very significant. But I, I find that it's a, a difficult area to navigate. I think what's going on in green, sustainable investment, is really interesting. That's where there's real hard work being done that is, I think, breakthrough work that, um, that can be sustainable, it can build legacy businesses because it delivers real value. More complicated to invest in because it usually requires more capital, as Tina refer, uh, referred to. I think there's very interesting work being done in the consumer area generally that isn't what I would call sort of social consumer web. And uh, I've got companies working, for instance, in patents and IP area, but companies working in home equity protection. I mean, these areas may sound mundane. They are growing like weeds, and they provide real substantial value. So there are lots of interesting areas outside of the ones that get, um, that get Twittered on all the time. And I think those are really, there's a lot of compelling places to invest in it. Interesting. Okay, another question? There are no questions in this big, okay, there we go. Um, first of all, it is hard to gauge a team coming in that you haven't met before. You reference them. Uh, I like to work with them for a while if I can, do some initial work sort of pro bono, helping them to solve problems and think about the problems they're working on to see how well we work together. But oftentimes, you'll start down a path and find out that if the path changes enough, the team is no longer suitable for the path. And it really depends what sort of relationship you've struck up with the team as to whether or not you're going to be able to course correct in that situation. If the team is very fluent in the issues, then you, will, you can very well find that you might be able to complement the team, change the complexion of the team a bit, change the leadership of the team, but retain the team in different roles, and continue down your path. You may find that it requires a new team, and the founding team has to think more like investors than like the, the, the actual operators in order to support that transition. I actually find that the interesting thing about teams is you can change them around by changing just a few players. Um, as I've had companies move from B to B to B to C, for instance, from business to business to business to consumer, you might say, well, that's got to call for a completely different team. It may call for a different person in marketing. It may call for a different CEO, and the CEO may move to a CTO position. It may, but, but 
teams really work as, as complements. It's not about everybody being able to be a long ball hitter. It's somebody's got to be up, somebody's got to bat first and get on base. Somebody's got to bat third and move in, and fill up the bases. And somebody's got to bat fourth and try to knock them in. And somebody's got to be there, the strong fifth, in case that guy, on, the fourth guy in the lineup strikes out. You've got to build a team that can complement each other and keep moving people around the bases. And so it's not about everybody being a, um, a fully formed entrepreneur capable of running the business. It's about finding those complements and mixing and matching people to get the best out of every player on the team. So I'm going to guess that a lot of people in this room are really curious about what your typical day is like. Oh. I mean, as a venture capitalist, you know, were you surprised about what your life is like? And, and maybe you could describe to us what it, what it looks like. Well, as I said, venture capitalists practice many different ways. Um, I am an odd venture capitalist because I really focus on very early stage projects. I roll my sleeves up, and I tend to work more like an entrepreneur just like I did as a virtual CEO. So my practice is very different than a lot of investors who invest in companies, sort of check in with them once a month at the board level or once every six weeks, and replace the CEO if it's not working. That's not the way in which I work businesses. So to call, it, I'm a venture capitalist because I work in venture capital. I don't very well fit the mold of how venture capital is often practiced. My day is um, largely around touching base with most of my companies. Today, for instance, I probably spoke to three or four of my 10 CEOs, um, get a sense of what's going on in their business, spend 10 minutes, spend a half hour, spend two hours with them to uh, help prepare for what's coming next, think through problems, whatever that takes, look at some new businesses coming in, um, some new ventures, maybe take, do some reference checks about, uh, about a new venture coming in, and then spend an immense amount of time reading about what's going on generally in the marketplace. So we happen to have in this audience a very unusual collection of people. We, have, of course, have our Stanford students, but we have a whole lar a large group from Asia, mm -hmm. a large group from Latin America. Um, I know that you've traveled around the world a lot. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the differences between entrepreneurship in these different regions? I mean, we're in a pretty unusual place here in Silicon Valley. What do you see as the opportunities and the challenges in these different parts of the world? One thing that, that's clear to me is innovation is evenly distributed where there are smart people. And there are smart people every place in the world. Innovation is not, um, is not a monopoly of Silicon Valley or the United States or the developed world. Innovation is part of sort of the creative, um, the creative element uh, that I think we find in the human condition everywhere. Entrepreneurship is a profession. It actually is practiced better in certain places than others. And it's important to distinguish the two, because I think when you merge the two, people resist the fact that there should be centers of excellence in entrepreneurship in some places and not in others. In fact, it took 70 years to build Silicon Valley up as a, as a center of excellence in entrepreneurship. And it's a, a variety of things that came together to make that happen. From the time that Frederick Terman, uh, sort of at Stanford, began to create this, um, this revolving door between this university and this valley for talent and ideas, to the time now where we see you know, Google and Twitter and Facebook, and now this wave of environmental green um, innovation, 
a lot has happened. I'd say there's a fundamental ethos in this valley that differentiates it from most of the centers of entrepreneurship in the world. And that is that failure is not personalized in Silicon Valley. Why is that important? It's important if you get what I was saying about getting to plan B, which is if plan A's are most often flawed, if we judge people on the ability to execute plan A, and we judge them as individuals rather than as ventures, then we're going to have an awful lot of false negatives. And we're going to throw a lot of people out as failures. Whereas if we understand that plan A's are most often flawed, and we understand that this is a process of innovation and experimentation, and getting it right by learning and investing in people, then we begin to think about how we structure these ventures differently. That's the core element that makes Silicon Valley different than most of the other entrepreneurial centers that I've run into around the world. So earlier today, I was meeting with a group of corporate visitors who were asking me about uh, how do they stimulate innovation within their company. I mean, it's not a company that's actually located here in Silicon Valley, and they're saying, you know, how do we, you know, what can we do? What are the levers we have to make that happen? I I'm curious what sort of insights you would have on that. I, I get the same questions all the time. I get them a lot more now. Kleiner Perkins, because they have these large companies coming through from the oil and gas business, as well as big consumer products companies, et cetera, and they always ask the same question. And, and I pose a question back to them, which is, is it okay in your business to fail 70% of the time? And they look at me like I'm crazy. And then I say, then you, then you can't build up innovation excellence in your business. There's no way you can be an innovator if you're not going to allow people to fail more often than they succeed. But what does that mean for the business? Does it mean the business needs to fail? Absolutely not. The business can't afford to fail. But you've got to be able to run enough experiments to reinvent your business, your product, serve your customers, that you're willing to tolerate a high degree of failure. Intuit, not a, not a small company by any means anymore, not, not, certainly not Procter & Gamble size, but a, a large public company has been working with me about around the getting to plan B process. And they've, been in, they've instituted it to, dry, to try to drive innovation. And what they found was before they, start, they started using the getting to plan B process, they were um, over-investing. They were investing beyond the time that the information was coming back negative because there was no way to hold projects accountable. Now that they put the getting to plan B process in place, they actually have more innovation going on because people will kill their own projects, because people will tell them when the data is no longer appropriate. And they don't want to continue with a project that's failing. They want to get into a project that's succeeding. And so the company's rewarding them for failing by allowing them to take new projects because they are now very accountable with the dollars and the time that they're spending on those projects. But if a large company is going to try to be a great innovator, they're going to have to build a culture in some part of their business that allows them to fail more than they succeed, or they should instead be a buyer of innovative companies. Yeah, which is a really good point. You know, it's th that that's another alternative, right? Is to say, I'm not going to innovate here, but I'll let all the experiments happen and I'll import it. Cisco does that very, very well. They've made a, they, they've probably, they're one of the, I think, the best practitioners of that in the world terms of being able to target, create relationships with, and acquire 
those innovations that make a difference to their long-term business. Right. I also think of pharmaceutical companies or you know, med tech companies where they say, great, we'll let all the startups try these and we'll acquire the technology when it's you know, much closer to, to working. In fact, if you look at the patents being filed by the pharmaceutical industry, by and large, the ones that are filed internally are incredibly incremental. You know, taking a drug that, that, uh, that lasted 12 hours and making it last 24. Whereas, on the other hand, if you take a look at the, the big, bold inventions that are being patented in the pharmaceutical industry, they're largely um, being created by small companies that are then acquired into companies whose best practice is sales and marketing. So that's a really good point that you bring up is you know, incremental changes versus you know, really big, monumental, game-changing innovation. Um, you know, we always think of you know the cars that end up with you know fifty thousand cup holders because everyone says, well, if one is good, then you know twenty is better. You know, how do you get a company? How do you get your colleagues to really think differently um, and really come up with very very innovative ideas? You know, there is a there is a, a thread of thinking in the innovation business that you respond to your customers. You go ask your customers. They'll tell you what you need. You service them. There's a big problem with that. Pro customers are not paid to be visionary. They're not. They have an immediate need. They want you to solve it. Lower the price. Get me, increase the quality. Get me more cup holders. You're in business. The way in which you need to innovate is you need the input from the customer, but you can't ask them the final question. You can't ask them whether or not this particular innovation or that particular innovation is something they need today. You've got to ask them the questions that allow you to know whether or not you think that innovation is something that they'll respond to when it's ready. And so I find that the best way to innovate, if you're a larger company in particular, and avoid incrementalism, is while you take your customer's input, you are not responsive to your, the, the, your customer's sort of final answer. Instead, you want to pull together as much contextual information as possible to come up with your decision. Yeah, and it's really a problem because we know that things that we now take for granted, like ATM machines, fail in focus groups. Yeah. I mean, customers couldn't imagine going to a bank and not dealing with a teller. And right. of course, now we can't imagine living without them. So making those big leaps are really often really hard for a customer to even imagine. Well, I think the phone is a very, the mobile phone's a very interesting one. In the early, I think maybe late 70s, early 80s, um, when McCall came, went to AT&T with their first big brick of a cell phone um, and uh, showed AT&T the product, AT&T looked at it and said, well, that will never work because the quality of service is too bad. In fact, our R&D group is spending all of their time in getting the sound quality to be perfect. And by the way, it was it was really good. I don't know how many of you remember what it was like to be on a landline with Ma Bell. It was a real, it, in, night and day compared to what we're used to today. What they failed to understand was how much, how important convenience was. The customer was willing to give up an awful lot of quality and quality of service for convenience. Yes, however, I should point out, you know, it's, almost, it's family folklore. When my husband gave me my first cell phone many years ago, I got angry with him. I said, why did you buy this gadget? I'm never going to use this. I don't need it. And he said, just try it for a couple of days. And I have to tell you, two days later, you would have had to pry it out of my hands. I had no idea how much I needed it. So, yeah. you know, it was, it was a huge reminder to me that often we don't even know what we're going to really be delighted by yeah. and find helpful until we actually have it. So do we have any other questions from the audience? Yes. 
I'd be interested in knowing your view of the future of Silicon Valley. Mm. It certainly has been an extremely dynamic type of a center of innovation for many, many years. Can it continue to be that center, particularly as you hear that more of the graduates, young people, are not necessarily staying here, but going back to the country that they might have come from in order to basically exploit their education and their innovation in their home countries? It's a very good question, and, I, and I'm going to answer it two ways. I believe that's, that there are going to be centers of excellence in entrepreneurship around the world that Silicon Valley will not stand alone, and certainly won't, there won't be as big a gap between the best practices in Silicon Valley today and the best practices in Bangalore, or the best practices in Taiwan, or the best practices in Chile. I think we're going to see that there's rapid improvement in entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial cultures around the world. That being said, I don't foresee anything on the immediate horizon that is going to challenge the strength of entrepreneurial practice here in the Valley. In fact, today, um, I agree with you. I think that we're clearly seeing a lot of kids go back off to um, other areas of excellence, uh, maybe to their home countries, for instance. A lot of that has to do with visa problems, which I think is a big problem. Um, but I must say, we're, for instance, in green. In green, a lot of the innovation in green um, we're finding outside the Bay Area, because the Bay Area wasn't working in this area. Purdue was working in this area. Iowa, um, Munich, uh, a lot of European uh, centers of excellence in innovation in green. Where are they building their companies? They're gravitating to come back over here. Because even though their innovation was someplace else, they see the power of the entrepreneurial culture Silicon Valley to rapidly build a great business. Someday, that will probably all change. I mean, there was a time in Detroit when I think people couldn't believe that, they, that there would ever be a challenge to the car makers. It's a little different here because it's not just about an industry. It's about this entrepreneurial process, which can apply itself to any industry. It's quite amazing when you think about it because it started here in, of course, Silicon. You know, and it moved from silicon into um, PCs, mainframes, PCs, ultimately into the web and services, software. Uh, and now we're finding it move into green. Medical, and, I, and I'm even talking about what's going on in life sciences, which this is a perennial in the valley of great innovation in life sciences. So there's a lot going on. I actually think the biggest threat to entrepreneurship in the valley is if the visa system makes it impossible for the best and brightest to come here to build their businesses. I think that the biggest threat to the Valley is what's happening to HB1 visas. And we've got to open our doors to best and brightest who want to come here from every place in the world to learn entrepreneurship, to build their businesses, to make their fortunes. If that stops, then the Valley is on borrowed time. So let me follow up on that question. You know, you get a chance to sort of go back and forth between Stanford and Silicon Valley. You're in the class and then back in your office. And when you're in the classroom, the students in our classes come from all over the world. You know, often I feel as though we're at the UN. Right. Do you see a difference between the students who've come from all over the world? Mm. Uh, uh, do, do you see any 
cultural impact on their entrepreneurial spirit? I, I actually see a difference between somebody who is um, a denizen of Stanford and somebody who comes from the East Coast. The um, sophistication, the fluency uh, that people get in entrepreneurship just being part of this culture, just being in this place, is remarkable. And you can see it in how quickly people come to grips with the various elements of entrepreneurship and understand them, understand the financial elements, understand the way in which companies get formed, understand how companies get capitalized. When I came to Valley, I didn't understand any one of these things. I can find an undergraduate at Stanford who has a pretty good understanding of all of those elements. Um, and it is very difficult for me oftentimes to find an MBA coming from someplace else in the country who is just not as exposed to it as a Stanford student. So I think Stanford, is a, there's, a, there's a great advantage to being at this place um, in this institution in this time. Great. Are there any more questions? Yes. Could you talk a little bit about what an aspiring entrepreneur could do to get his foot in the door with VCs like yourself to be able to pitch an idea? So the question is, how does someone who wants to get your attention right. get in the door? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different ways. I mean, clearly, the best way to do it is to, through a trusted source. I mean, we see way too many project ideas every year. Um, if, if I see 3,000 project ideas in a year, I may actually um, dig in on 300. I may actually have meetings with 100. I might actually invest in two. And so um, how, do you, how do you sort of fall, get into that groove? Two ways. One is you go off with your own money and prove your idea works, and I'm a fool not to be part of it. I don't generally like those, but I have partners who do. Um, the other is that you get to me through a trusted source, somebody who has looked at what you're doing, believes in it, and, that, and that's somebody I know and believe in. And that's how you sort of get to be part of that 300. Great. Another question? Yes, Manu. So the question is, um, in my own career, I've changed course many, many times. And, um, and she so kindly said that I've been sort of looking for my, my sweet spot. Um, and so the question then is, in getting to my sweet spot, if we could argue that I'm there, and I'll, and I'll argue against that in a second, um, did I feel like a failure in those changes? My, my career only makes sense in the rearview mirror. I didn't get here by design. I got here through some basic principles, and I apply them every day. And those principles are really simple. Find the best people in the world that I can associate with and learn from. Find the best source of opportunities long term. What's the richest vein of opportunities that, are going to, that I can find and that are going to come my way? and find something today, this moment, 
that engages my passion. Three very simple principles. I answer every question, every door that opens for me, I apply those three questions to. And my, um, my general person, my personality is why not? So I always have to persuade myself not to. Um, when a door opens, the monk in the riddle, when, the, when, when Harvard came to me and said, would you be interested in writing a book? I came away from that meeting and I thought, there's no way I'm going to write a book. I'm not a writer. I don't, I don't have a business book idea. Um, I'm not going to do it. By the next morning, I convinced myself that this door was never going to open for me again. Who the heck was going to ask me to write a book again? Certainly not a first-class publisher. And I went back to them with a crazy idea. I'm going to write a book about nothing. I'm going to write a book about the simple notion of what it takes to sort of be in, in, the, in the industry of innovation. And it worked. Um, so those three questions are the way I, I think about things. I do not, I, I, I feel like I failed, I'm sure I failed many times. There are many times I did not achieve the result I wanted. If that defines failure, I have, I have a lot of them. I've only felt like a failure a few times. And I felt like a failure when I made a decision that didn't answer those three questions the right way. And when I sold myself short or took a shortcut. Only times I've ever felt like a failure. Great. Yep, then. Um, so are you going back to your point about our leaders? Um, Senator Kerry and Senator Luger have just introduced some legislation um, regarding the startup visa. And I'm working with a group that's actually trying to get um, visas sponsored for entrepreneurs who, then, who uh, are able to get funding brought by U.S. venture capitalists. And I just checked, we don't have you and Climate Perkins on that list. So ah. we can't get you and Climate Perkins to support that. You've got, you've got me, for sure. I mean, and I, and I know it well, and I think it's great. It's very important. Very important. Great. Okay. Back there? There's been a lot of Incubator's been around a long time. The concept's been around a long, long time. The yield out of incubators is, ju is just historically low. That doesn't mean, as an entrepreneur, you shouldn't take advantage of it. The opportunity to get a little money, some space, make things easier, faster, grease the wheels, expose you to other entrepreneurs so that you can share your, your information, your contacts, your stories, very good thing. From an investor standpoint, historically, they have not been great payoffs. So... Um, in Silicon Valley, the whole valley is an incubator. To be an incub in an incubator in Silicon Valley is almost to wall yourself off. To be in an incubator in Santiago, Chile, that might actually be a good thing because you need to create a culture which is going to be highly supportive of what, of what you're doing, and the broader culture may not be. So the question yeah. is, what projects in Latin America are most attractive? You know, th this, is, this is one of the areas that I must say I feel constant frustration because, um, because I've spent time in Santiago and, and, and Buenos Aires, et cetera, and I get lots of people asking me for help with entrepreneurship down there. And to be frank, I don't know the market well enough. It's an area that I've been loath to invest in because 
um, given the stacked priorities of the opportunities we see, and given how little we know about the market, from here I have, um, I have been reluctant to try to help, largely because I don't think I can help as much. Um, but I will give you a general piece of, of, of advice. And it's the same advice I gave when I traveled, in, traveled to India or to travel to China. A lot of times what you'll find is in the um, developing economies, um, and I would consider area, even Chile and Argentina and Brazil to be developing economies, um, you'll see that entrepreneurship is largely focused on trying to sell me something here in the United States because they see me as having a deep pocket and a big market. I think that's wrong. I think that the strengths that they've got are exactly the weaknesses I've got. I don't understand your market, and you do. Um, and there are, the, in the developing economies are big, and they're going to get bigger. And if you can address the needs in the developing economies with great innovation, it's going to broadly apply, not just in Chile, not just in Argentina, not just in Brazil, but potentially in places like India and in, in Southeast Asia, et cetera. So my general feeling is to focus in on what you know, the markets you know, serve those markets really well, innovate in the markets that are harder for my entrepreneurs to innovate in, and build success from there. Great. One more question. Down here. Like your experience of dealing with startups and all that, and so you must be analyzing a lot of ideas. So I wanted to ask, like uh, right now, there's all this boom on the internet. Like you talk, you were interested in consumer internet, like social media uh, and uh, Twitter, Facebook. Is this bubble gonna burst? You feel? And what is the next next step where the internet will go to after this? Um. Social, social web is the first time I actually felt old. Um, up until the social web, I kind of knew what was going on all the time. I got, I got web 0.0. I even got web 2.0 pretty easily. Um, I, I mean, I was a very active sort of participant in what was going on in the music and entertainment area all through the 90s. Um, and I was translating a lot of that into web businesses. Social media perplexed me at first, and I'm, and I'm making peace with it. But it perplexed me at first because I couldn't understand a number of things. I couldn't understand why people were so interested in being distracted constantly. I couldn't understand why people were so interested in sharing so much. Um, I couldn't understand the lack of privacy. I couldn't understand the concept of having a thousand friends. I couldn't understand the, the phenomena. But here's, here's, the, here's, where I'm, here's where I've come out in it today. There very well may be a bubble brewing in the valuations of a lot of the companies that are seen as leaders in this area. But I don't believe social media is a bubble. I think we started off with a web that was largely communications-based. Email was driving the first web. I think we moved from that to a, to a web that was largely driven by information content. I think we then moved to a web that was largely driven by media. I think it is very natural that we are now in a web that is driven by people. I think social is actually a misnomer now. When, as, 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 um, as, as little as I am a denizen of the social web, when somebody comes into me and uses the term social, by and large, I figure they don't get it. Because it is just in the air. 
it, it, isn't a, it isn't something unique any longer. It needs to be built into almost every behavioral model for how, peop for how people are going to interact with digital information, digital content, digital anything. And so I think it is that the, the, the adding people to the web, natural, obvious, continued. Now the question is, what happens after people? Um, my feeling is that we're still very much overwhelmed on the web. And it only gets more overwhelming when I add people to the mix of everything else I said. We're going to have to have ways to navigate the web, find stuff, share stuff that takes a lot less of our attention. Attention is the scarce resource nowadays. Not information, not data, not people. Attention. And if we're going to continue to take advantage of what's going on with more and more and more delivered to us at our fingertips, wherever we are, anytime, day or night, in broadband, then we're going to have to have different tools for making sense of it. I think that's going to be the next really interesting part of the web. And, um, and I think we're going to see some very cool ideas, like what you see at some, a company like Cool Iris, which was designed around how do you navigate, visually navigate, all of this. Great. Well, I'm sure that you all agree with me that Randy is a fountain of knowledge <laughs> and inspiration. And I hope you'll join me in a big round of applause. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.